Ecclesiastes chapter 9 and verses uh, 1 to 10. Death comes to all. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same events happen to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and to the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner, and he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same events happen to all. Also, the hearts of the children of men are full of evil and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. But he who is joined with the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they will have no more reward for the memory of them is forgotten." Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in it, all that is done under the sun. Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hands find to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you're going. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Uh, uh, there's many ways I think that uh, Steve and Maddie bless us as a church. Uh, one of the best ways, Maddie, is with your violin playing, I think. Um, it's really great, so thank you for that. Uh, my name's Andrew. If you don't know me, if you're visiting, my name's Andrew. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here at Village. Um, this is the quietest Sunday of the year, but I think probably because people read Ecclesiastes chapter 9, realized that's what we were talking about, and decided to stay at home. Um, I certainly think it's one of the dreariest passages in the Bible. When I say dreary, I mean most morbid passages in the Bible. Um, but yes, that's where we are this morning. We're in this series called Living Life Backwards, which is our uh, series in the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, and Ecclesiastes is really this uh, collection of writings by uh, Solomon, King Solomon, who was the son of, of King David in the, in the nation of Israel. Um, and he writes under the kind of guise of this, this ghost writer called the teacher, the preacher. In Hebrew, it's Kohelet. Um, and he's, he's examining all these aspects of life, and he's trying to come up with all these like explanations, the meaning of life. Uh, he's, been, um, he's, he's the wealthiest man in, in the world. He's, he has a thousand wives and concubines. Um, he is uh, the wisest man in the world, although with a thousand wives and all that, I don't know how wise he actually was, but there you go. He's explored every aspect of human life, and he's trying to come up with all these answers. Um, and he gets to this point in the passage, and we see him start to try and tie it all together. So let's dive in. I want to start by asking you a question um, this morning. What is or what are some of the things that are most important to you in your life? What are some of the most significant things in your life? It could be anything. It could be your friends. It could be your marriage. It could be your boyfriend, your girlfriend. It could be your car. It could be uh, a holiday. It could be your job. It could be anything. I asked this question uh, to a few people last week, sent out a text. Here's some of the answers I got back, and it might help you consider it for yourself. Uh, some people said, one person said creativity. Actually, creativity was a big one. Um, which maybe says more about the type of church we are than, than, than actually human, humankind, but maybe not. A uh, sense of achievement was really important. Time with loved ones was another common theme. Community, church, good food. Somebody did say their car to get around, really important. Uh, somebody said daily hugs and kisses. That wasn't me, although I do like daily hugs and kisses. Uh, somebody else said their fiance, music, their bike, bike rides. And somebody said beer at the right temperature, not looking at anyone in particular. Uh, that's a really important one, so I put it last. Um, 
And maybe some of these things resonate with you, things that you hold significant, things that, are, that you feel like, I'd find it really hard to live without any of those things. And all the things, they're, they're really, really good things. They're all, they're, these are all good things. They're all gifts in life that we've been given. But how do we find significance in those things, right? Because what happens if you're dealt a hand in life, to use a non-biblical phrase, if you're dealt a hand in life, that means that you don't have any of those things. What happens if you don't have a car? Lots of people don't have a car. What happens if you don't have friends and family? Lots of people don't have friends and family. What happens if you don't have your health? What happens if you don't have community? What happens, Davy, if you're not bare? What happens if these things are taken away? What happens if these things aren't available to us? How do we find significance then? And I think our passage this morning has a lot to say about this. So as I mentioned, at this point in, in Ecclesiastes, Kohelet, he's, he's starting to sum up all his findings. He's looked at various aspects of life. He's looked at work. He's looked at marriage. He's looked at relationships. He's looked at money. And he's found a lot of these things are just meaningless. And so he's starting to put all his findings together. He's starting to sum up. But the problem is that he can't really find any findings. He can't really find any conclusions. He doesn't, life doesn't seem to make much sense. He can't find any surety. Look, listen to verse 1. Keep your Bibles open because we're just going to work our way through the text. But I, all this I laid to heart, examining it all. So he's examining it deep in his heart. How the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. You see, he's examined the very depths of life, all its intricacies and nuance, all its pleasures, all its pains. And all of his wisdom he's put into this, he's taken into the very depths of his heart, and what does he find out? He comes up with, nobody knows what life is going to bring. Nothing is certain. He says, listen, you can be righteous and wise. You can follow God and live the way that he's intended you to live. But it doesn't guarantee that you're going to have good things in your life. It doesn't guarantee that you're going to have a a healthy and wealthy and long and prosperous life. He says nobody knows. It could be love or hate. In other words, following God doesn't automatically mean that you will have a life without sorrow and hardship. We see this throughout all of Scripture, don't we? Think of some of the key players in the story of Scripture. I was thinking of Joseph, right? Joseph faithful to God. What happened to him? He was sold as a slave. He was accused of sexual assault. He was put in prison. Jeremiah, the great prophet. I've been reading Jeremiah this last couple of weeks. Unbelievable. Jeremiah uh, was one of the only faithful men in Israel. When all of Israel was rejecting God, they were actually practicing child sacrifice. They were, they were worshiping idols in the temple where they should have been worshiping God. And Jeremiah stays faithful. And what happened to him? He was beat up, he was tied up, he was thrown down a well. One of my favorites, John the Baptist. John the Baptist, the guy whose job it was, he he lived a simple life, he lived a humble life. All he did was point people to Jesus. He didn't want end for himself. And what happened to him? He had his head cut off. And I look at these people. We could look at Paul. We could look at so many people in the Bible. Paul, how many times was he beat up and stoned? How many times was he shipwrecked, bitten by a snake, all this kind of stuff? If the Bible shows it's anything, it's that being faithful to God doesn't guarantee a pain-free life while we're here. I think that's, the, I think that's one of the biggest deceptions of, you know, when you turn on the, the God channel or some of these prosperity things. It's just crazy that you could read this book and come up with the idea that if you believe in God, you're going to be blessed with money and health. That doesn't, that, that's, ne- that's never in here. The point is this. Kind of, that was a wee tangent. That was a kind of wee soapbox moment. The point is this. God watches over all the deeds of people who love and follow him, but nobody knows what tomorrow will bring. Nobody. Now, you might be thinking, well, this is a, this is a pretty grim message for the middle of summer. But wait, it gets worse. <laughs> Actually, it does. Let's, look at, let's read verses 2 and 3. It's the same for all. Can you imagine him writing this? Oh my goodness. It's the same for all. Since the same event, 
happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who offers sacrifice, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. As he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. Uh, when he's talking about swearing, we understand sacrifice, I think, but swearing, that's when you would, you would actually make allegiances to God. You would pledge things to God. So he's saying that people who do that, people who don't do that, they're all the same. Verse three, this is an evil that is done to all under the sun, that the same event happens to all. So he's saying that not only do we not know what's going to happen tomorrow or the next day or the next day, we all know what's ultimately going to happen. We're all going to die. That's his one big conclusion. That's the one surety we have in life. That's the one certainty we have in life. That's the same event that he's talking about here. And he mentions these two types of people, right? He talks about the righteous, the good, the clean, those who sacrifice, those who swear oaths, i.e. those who follow God and obey his commands. And then the other group of people is the wicked, the evil, the unclean, those who don't sacrifice, i.e. those who don't follow God and ignore him. But the same fate awaits us all, right? We're all going to die. In all of his examining and experimenting and experiencing the only thing he knows is that we're all going to die. The only, thing, the only two things he knows is nobody knows what's going to happen and we're all going to die. It's the one, listen, it's the one universe. I, want, I really want you to feel this point this morning because it, it really gets at the point of everything else we're going to read and, and study this morning. The one truth that is universal to all of us in this room, whether you're Christian, not Christian, young, old, Good, bad, ugly. It doesn't matter. You're, we're all going to die. We're all closer to the moment of our death right now than we have ever been. And it should feel morbid. It should feel heavy. Death's the only constant under the sun. It's the only one thing that we have truly in common with everyone else. We feel it, don't we? It's just a fact of life. We've all known somebody that's passed away. And if you haven't, it's only a matter of time. I'm not trying to be morbid. I'm just trying to be faithful to what the word of God has sent to us. And here's the thing that we do. We, try, we like to try to think that we can make sense of death, don't we? So we have this framework in our heads that only old people die. So what happens is you're born, you grow up in a healthy, happy home. Um, you work hard, you have good friends, you have a good career, you retire, you rest, you get to see your grandkids grow up. And then whenever you're really old, you die peacefully and happy in your, be- in your bed with your family and loved ones around you. That's what we think should happen. We, we've, we, we try to control this evil in the world by making sense of it, by thinking, well... If it's only old people that only old people die, and that way it's not as bad. It's it's making the best of a bad situation. But two things. Firstly, that's not even true all the time because I've known loads of young people that have died. We all have. What happens when it's what happens when it's a, a father that dies in a car accident, or what happens when it's a, a a baby that's stillborn, or what happens when you know it's a sibling that gets cancer. And we go, we go, they're not supposed to die. They were taken far too young. It does, it's not fair. It's not fair. Why? It doesn't make sense. And Kohelet, the teacher, he tells us that no matter how much medical science improves and no matter how much we extend our lives, and we do, and our population is getting older and older and older, we can't stop. Death. But the second thing is, this is the lesson that's to be learned from the universality of death. Death comes to us all. But, but I think that Kohelet, he wants us to learn a lesson. Let's look at verse 3 again. He says, This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. Wow. I mean, these are hard things to hear, aren't they? Firstly, it's an evil in all. Evil's in the hearts of the children of men. There's a madness in there. And then after that, you're just going to go to the dead. But listen to these words carefully. This is an evil that is done under the sun. It's an evil in all that is done under the sun. You see, he's examined 
uh, all of life. And he, want, he thinks that there's a lesson to be learned from the fact that we all end up dying. And this is the lesson. Death reveals to us that there's something wrong with the world. There's something fundamentally wrong with the very fabric of creation. We all feel it. Even, even people outside the church, that's why death hurts so bad. It's why we have this inbuilt drive to survive and go on. It's why, it, why when someone who isn't supposed to die dies, that it offends us, doesn't it? That's actually what it is. Grief is an offense. It offends our very sensibilities because it doesn't make sense. Like, it doesn't make sense. Have you ever been at a funeral or a wake and you're looking at, and you're looking at the, you know, the body of someone that's passed away and you're just going, I don't understand this. How can they be there but not be there? This doesn't, how can they be there one moment and not the next? Because it's not meant to make sense for us. And death shows us that. Death wasn't part of God's creation order. God didn't create death to be part of how we experience the world. And the Bible tells us that we rebelled against God, right? We rebelled against God. And Paul tells us that through that rebellion, sin entered the world and death through sin. Death is the result of our rebellion against God. And we need to learn that as the lesson. But here's another lesson that death can teach us. Look at verses four to six with me. But he who is joined with all the living has hope. For a living dog, I love this, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. (laughs) And they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. So what's he saying? He's saying that, Right, in natural terms, in human earthly terms, when you're gone, you've no more chance to live your life. It's done, it's over. Under the sun, when you're done and gone, you're done and gone. But if you're alive, then you have hope. Then you have an opportunity. And that opportunity is a gift. This is what he means by a a, a living dog is better than a dead lion, right? Let me explain. In uh, ancient times, dogs weren't revered and loved the, the way they are now, right? Um, somebody said to me once, uh, if aliens came to Earth, they'd think that, uh, you know, dogs were the dominant species on Earth because humans follow them around, they exercise them, they bath them, they pick up their poo, they feed them, you know, they cuddle them. Like, they, we, we worship our dogs in some ways like that, don't we? But do- dogs weren't like that in ancient times in the Bible. Dogs were, dogs were scavengers, They weren't domesticated. They ran about the streets and they ate carcasses. They had fleas. They had disease. Even in Revelation, in the book of Revelation, John John actually said that dogs will be outside because dogs represent something that's unclean and unholy. But lions in the Bible, lions were totally different. The insignia of King David was the lion, right? Right? Jesus is the lion of Judah. Jesus, uh, lions in the Bible are kings. Lions are feared and respected and honored. So what he's saying is, it's better to be a living scavenger than a dead king. It's better to be someone alive who's rejected by men and has to live on the streets than it is to be someone who's honored after they're dead. Because when you're dead... You've no more opportunity. You've no more opportunity for anything. You've no more opportunity to live well. You've no more opportunity to love well. You've no more opportunity to follow God well. When you're dead, you're dead. That's it. Your opportunity's over. So no matter what your portion in life is, we need to seek significance in this, right? This is what he's saying. He's saying, make the most of your portion in life. Seek significance where God has placed you, whether you're a dog or whether you're a lion. For the people of God, whether you live in a dump or in a palace, our responsibility to our responsibility to life is the same. In the face of death, we have this responsibility to live. We have a responsibility to seek significance. Imagine, imagine uh, somebody gives you a really great gift. Someone gives you, uh, you know, like a, a class brand new car. You know, like a really nice BMW, you know, top of the range. Uh, you know, I'm not really a car person, so I have an idea what it looks like in my head, but, you know, really fancy BMW. And imagine you take that gift and you're like, cheers, sweet. Um, but then you 
Never really use it. You might drive it to the shop every now and again, but when you go in the shop, you leave the keys in the ignition. Uh, you never use it to give anybody a lift anywhere. You know, you, you don't wash it. You don't maintain it. You don't change the oil. Never take it to get serviced or anything like that. And eventually it just sits in your driveway until it's all seized up and rusted. Now, if you did that, what would that say about how much you value that gift? And what would it say about how much you value the person that gave you that gift? You see, there's a responsibility in how we enjoy and treat the gifts that we're given, which says a lot about the person that's given them to us. So we, uh, uh, we got Finley, who's four, we got him a, a bike for his birthday, and he loves it. And he's so funny, because I had to tell him off for something. I can't remember what it was. He was messing about when I was trying to get him to school or something. And <laughs> he goes, uh, he, knew, he knew that I was a bit annoyed with him. So I just put him in the car, and he goes, Daddy. And I was like, what? And he was like, I just love that new bike you gave me. You are so nice. <laughs> like, you know, trying to move me around. But actually, the way that we, but he, it, it, does, it, does, it does our hearts good when we see him enjoying that because we're like, oh man, he gets so much joy and pleasure out of that gift. And how we treat the gifts and use the gifts says a lot. But imagine if we ignore the gift and let the car rust up in the driveway. What does that say? You see, actually you're thinking, that's awful. Like if someone gave me a BMW, it'd be sweet. But we do this all the time with life, don't we? We sit and we consume endless information and entertainment online. We'll sit in a room with other people and we'll be like this. Don't we? We do. I do it. Don't act like don't do it because you do do it because we all do it. I do it. We get bored so easily. We don't make the effort to go and spend time with that friend that we know we should just because we can't be bothered. We don't invite people around our house for dinner because, oh, well, we've had a really long week and we probably just deserve a wee rest. And, you know, it's just too much effort to tidy up the house. We chase after a more comfortable home rather than with more people in need to fill it with. We chase after more money in the bank rather than more people in need to share it with. This is what it means to waste your life, and we're all guilty of it. See, everything about the world is trying to convince us to seek comfort over significance. We have as high a standard of living right now as, as human beings have ever had. I mean, maybe may apart from the very, those very few, very, very rich people like Solomon... But, but, but generally speaking, as a human race, we in this country, in the Western world, we have, as high a standard, we have a higher standard of living than we've ever had. We carry these things around our pockets and we have access to all the entertainment, all the information, all the news, all the me- everything that has ever been created. I can, I can uh, pull up quotes from dead kings or I can pull up videos of cats playing, whatever it is, whatever my heart desires, I can find it on here. But yet we're not happy. It doesn't satisfy us. We still get frustrated when we can't get the Wi-Fi to work. Even like last week upstairs, just like I had to wait like a few seconds for a web page. Like, what's wrong with the Wi-Fi? No, nothing. Just give it a second. We have everything, but yet it's not enough. I was listening to Arcade Fire this week, um, and they have this song of the latest album, and it's just really, it's just really this one line that repeats over and over again. But it just, just given the fact that I was reading Ecclesiastes, it struck me. And it just says, infinite content, we're infinitely content. He just repeats that over and over and over again. Isn't that powerful? Infinite content, we're infinitely content. We wake up, and we wake up in the morning, the first thing we do is <laughs> grab this thing and just absentmindedly scroll it to see what significant thing we can find in it. Who's been texting us? Who's been tweeting us? Who's been leaving a message on Facebook? What's been happening? And we ignore the fact that we're in a room with, with loved ones. That's what it means to waste your life. And the world teaches that significance is to be found in contentment. Have all this stuff. Have more of this stuff. Then your life will mean something. And the worst part of it is that we believe it, right? We believe this lie that significance is found in more comfort. And... <laughs> It's funny, all those adverts you see, like for if you get the latest iPhone or the latest computer or whatever it is, 
suddenly you're going to have all these friends around your life. It's going to be great. You're going to be going for coffee all the time in the park with your dog and blah, blah, blah. It's going to be great. Or the World Cup ones are mental. Like Thierry Henry trying to sell me like a massive TV and then suddenly his house full of like all these people that are really important to him. No, Terry, you're just trying to sell me a TV. Good looking French man. It's like, it's like if we have more stuff to make us comfortable, we'll have more significance. And here's the other sad thing. We do it with church as well, don't we? Do it with church. We have this list of ideal things that we want in a church. And so we shop around until we find the one that has the least amount of things wrong with it or the most amount of things that we like about it. And then we give it a go. It's like, it's like test driving cars, isn't it? And we find the one that has the least amount of things wrong with it, and we give it a go, and we stick there until a newer model comes out which has better features. Uh, I was thinking about this last night and this morning. Um, I, I, I genuinely believe that I genuinely, I genuinely believe that one of the greatest accomplishments of the devil is to get us. We've. He's managed to get us to to turn the the blood-bought bride of Christ, this beautiful, broken, messy community of people, he's managed to get us to turn that into a product to be consumed rather than a community and a family to belong to. And we all do it. We're so embedded in our culture of comfort that we don't even realize that we've taken the good things that God has given us in life and put them on a pedestal in the hope that they'll bring us some significance. It's so embedded in us. We're surrounded by it. We're brought up in it that we need to work really hard to make sure that we're not doing that. We take, God gives us these gifts and we take them and turn them into our gods. Just this week, I know I'm laboring this point, but it's important. Just this week, I saw this, this clip of Russell Brand. Uh, funny, Russell Brand in the sermon, but there you go. It's funny how the world works. And he was talking about um, his addictions to sex and heroin, um, and specifically to do with the sex one, uh, he was talking about the, you know the times in his life when he was the time in his life when he was so prom- promiscuous and he he, he, could, he doesn't even know how many people he slept with, crazy. Um, and the way he talks about the way he talked about it in this interview is he talks about those intimate experiences, the plethora of intimacy that he experienced with different people. He talks he actually uses the word worship. He was looking for a worship experience. He, not that he wanted to be adored, but that he wanted to adore something. And in that moment, in that moment of intimacy between him and this other person, he is pouring out his adoration on them. Isn't that crazy? But this is what he says. I've had to like edit this a wee bit because it's Russell Brand. But he says this. When you get the things your culture tells you you should be doing and you experience them, now you know you can stop chasing the carrot because you've had a bite out of it and it's like, hold on a minute, this is rubbish. He's like a modern day Solomon, isn't he? He's like, he's been to the end of what the world tells him he will find comfort and significance in and he's like, it's rubbish. This isn't the way the people of God are meant to live. The world says pursue comfort. God says pursue significance because soon you're going to be dead. Living life backwards, it means seizing the gift of life with both hands and pursuing significance over comfort. Enjoyment in life comes not in the quest for personal fulfillment, but in the recognition, verse 1, that everything comes from the hand of God. We enjoy the gifts in the way that they're meant to be enjoyed, and in doing so, we give glory to the one that gave us them. So we seek, pursue significance over comfort. But you might be asking, how do we do this? Well, luckily for us, uh, Kohelet gives us four examples. Number one, pursue significance in your food and drink. Look at verse seven. Go, eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. First thing we have to notice here is the word Go. There's an implicit command to get up and actively do something. Time to get off your bum and enjoy the gifts of life. Time to to get up and actively enjoy your food and drink. By using the command go, the teacher's telling us to to put more effort into seeking significance in the gifts that God gives us and he starts with dinner. 
And you're thinking, why do you start with dinner? Why do you start with food and drink? Like, that's a weird thing to seek significance in. It's like he's saying, we're all going to die, so go and eat some dinner. Eat some bread, drink some wine. That sounds silly to us, but let me put it another way. Imagine if we read it this way. Our time on earth is short, so don't waste it don't waste it on eating your dinner alone in front of the TV because dinner is important. Let me expand. Meals in the Bible are really important. Meals in the life of Jesus were really important. Last summer, we did a whole series on meals with Jesus. Having dinner with people was a huge part of Jesus' example to us and in his ministry. The very focal point of our faith is a meal. You ever think about that in a class? And the story of God's, God, God's salvation of the human race. I thought it was me. I was like, oh my goodness, time's up. Better go. Um, or else like time to get up. That's my time to get up. But the very story of God's salvation of the human race ends with a meal. It ends with this marriage feast. What's described in Revelation as the marriage supper, supper of the Lamb. See, having good food and good wine with good people is how we practice for heaven. And I'm going to expand on that later. And this is why we've said to our missional community a lot, like, listen, if you're going to be eating alone tonight, don't, don't eat alone. Come around our house. I mean, we might only have beans on toast, but it'll be significant, significant because we'll be enjoying it together. Just come around. Don't do it alone. Obviously, there's times we have to eat alone, but you don't need to. And I think in this, he kind of goes back to the living dog, dead lion thing. Because that bit's all about uh, enjoying and seeking significance in your portion. So for some of you, enjoying food and significance is going to a fancy restaurant, uh, you know, paying too much for a tiny piece of food this size and a really expensive bottle of wine. For other people, it's just getting a Chinese and a bottle of Coke uh, around at your friend's house. And both of those are fine. Both of those are good ways to seek significance. It's not about what you eat. It's about the way you eat it. The question is, does how you do meals reflect the fact that you recognize that all meals are a gift from God? Do your meals teach you something about what the kingdom of God is like? If you want to seek significance, start at the dinner table. But what does he mean by this phrase, for God has already approved what you, what you do? I think he's saying that enjoying these, these things as a gift from God is how we celebrate and relish in the grace of God. He's saying it's okay. Listen to these words from Psalm 104. And this is David, and he's, he's writing this prayer to God, and he says, You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants, for man to cultivate, that he might bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of men. See, food and drink are these gifts from God to gladden our hearts. God is pleased to make us pleased. God is glad to make us glad. This is the grace of God. Just as I'm happy when I see Finley riding as we bike and enjoying it, God is happy when we enjoy the gifts he has given us. It's about enjoying these things in the way he intended us to enjoy them. We should enjoy them and give glory to the giver. Number two, pursue significance in your appearance. Let's look at verse eight. Let your garments always be white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. And there's a couple of significant things going on here. Firstly, in the Bible, when people were mourning, they wore sackcloth, which is this really rough material, and they covered their face in ashes. So the sky was really dry and itchy. And basically what was going on was, what was on the outside reflected what was going on in the inside. So he said, put on these garments of white, which are the garments of celebration, which are the garments of comfort because they reflect the heat of keep you cool in the, the, warm, uh, the warm desert sun. Put oil in your head. It's perfume. It makes you smell good. It moisturizes your skin. It's the opposite of sackcloth and ashes. Let what's going on on the inside be reflected by what's going on on the outside. So the teacher's saying, just because you're going to die someday, don't dress like you're going to a funeral. Don't walk around mourning because you're going to die someday. Look after yourself today because you are alive. I grew up going to a church where everybody 
man, it was so funny because it was this kind of weird thing where you would go to celebrate on a Sunday morning, you'd go to celebrate the risen Lord by dressing and talking and acting and behaving like you're going to a funeral. I'm like, that doesn't, you know, looking back, you're like, that doesn't make sense. It's a celebration. We come here this morning to celebrate that Jesus is alive, amen? So you're happy and you know it. Show your face. Listen, I, I'm, I'm not saying if you're, if you're we, we talk about this a lot in Village and we really mean it. If you're, if you're in pain this morning, if you're grieving, if you're hurting, that's okay. We want you to be honest about that and we want Village to be a place where you can feel secure enough to share that. And we want to share in that grief and mourning and sorrow and pain with you. We, we're not about being happy, clappy, absent-minded people. But it's clear that there's a time that we should be seeking joy. We should be, should be seeking significance. There's another layer to this appearance thing as time starts to get away from me. Uh, white garments in the Bible represent uh, the practical acts of righteousness. What does that mean? That means white garments are a symbol in the Bible, in the Old Testament and New Testament, of uh, living in the right way. When we live in the way that God has intended us to do, through the power of the Holy Spirit, it's like we're dressed in pure white linen. Listen to these words from Revelation 19. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saint. So to be clothed with white is to live righteous lives, to live a life in the way that God has intended, to live a life of worship, to live a life of service of other people, to live a life which celebrates the blessings that God has given you. More importantly, to live a life which shares the blessings God has given you. So we seek significance in our meals, not by hoarding it all up to ourselves and having a really good feast every day, but by opening our doors and living righteously and sharing what we have with, with the needy. This is how we dress in white garments. What about the oil then? The oil in, oil in the Bible, both in the Old and New Testament, is a representation of the Holy Spirit. This is why we have, uh, well, oil firstly was poured in the head. It was poured in the head like the, the Holy Spirit. We see this in the Psalms where, uh, you know, uh, when, when the brothers and sisters dwell in unity, God commands a blessing. It runs down the head and the beard of Aaron. That's, it's sweet smelling. This is why we have phrases like, pour out your spirit, mentioned in the Bible, because the oil, the sweet smelling incense oil is, 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 is like a, a picture of the Holy Spirit. So for us as Christians who have received the Holy Spirit, if you're a Christian today, then the Holy Spirit lives within you. So... When we do dinner, we, we, we enjoy the blessing by sharing it with other people, living righteously, and allowing the Holy Spirit to guide us in that. So here's the question. Who's the Holy Spirit leading you to invite to your dinner table? Who's the Holy, who's the Holy Spirit saying to you, I need to have them to our table for dinner. I need to share my blessings with them. Who are the people that you need to serve sacrificially? These are the questions we need to ask as we seek significance. 30 then, uh, verse 9. Seek significance in marriage. Verse 9. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun because that is your portion in life. Marriage is a blessing. It's a gift from God. It's an evidence of God's grace to his human race. And we've already seen, you know, that, well, marriage only lasts for, you know, while you're alive under the sun. That's why, I mean, if you ever think about this, death is present at a wedding. On the happiest day of your life, death is present. You stand up here and you say, uh, till death do us part. Death is for under the sun. But there's, there's these other lessons here that I want to point out in Kohelet's teaching. Firstly, the command go still applies to this. There's work to be put into your marriage if you're going to enjoy and love one another. Right? Boost, like, he's engaged. He's just like, nah, nah, nah. No, no work. It's just enjoying each other, right? It's easy. Nope, it's work. All the married people are like, yep, it's work. Feels like work sometimes. Only joking. That was a joke. Oh, man, why do they say that? I'm in trouble. Enjoying each other doesn't just happen. Loving each other doesn't just happen. It takes effort. He says, go, get off your bum, and enjoy the wife who you love. Enjoy the husband who you love. It takes effort. There's work involved. We strive each other to serve each other every single day and love each other and find beauty in the other person. Someone finds beauty in me. Isn't that incredible? 
Uh, thanks. Vote <laughs> of confidence back there, Tom. The other part of this is when he says, uh, this, because that is your portion in life. What he's saying is, enjoy what is yours. Don't think you're missing out on something better. Don't wish for younger. Don't wish for better looking. Don't wish for more money. Don't wish for more hair. It's getting very personal all of a sudden. Because your spouse is your portion. Listen, God Almighty in his infinite wisdom has seen fit to give you the partner that he has given you. So enjoy that gift. Seek significance in that gift. Honor the one that has given you that gift by putting your all into it. And listen, I'll tell you something else. This means you're not enjoying your portion if you're flirting with the guy at work. You're not enjoying your portion if you're cheating with someone in your mind. You're not enjoying the portion that God has given you. You're not enjoying the wife who God has given you to love if you're looking at porn online every day. If your sexual drive and sexual desire is more for the pornography you watch than for the wife God has given you to love. Don't waste this gift. It's a gift. We're blessed with it. Number four, the last one. Uh, the end of verse 9. Seek significance in work. Uh, because this is, that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Uh, you know, someone pointed out to me this week, uh, interestingly, Kohelet ties the idea of work and marriage together. I couldn't figure out why there's no gap between marriage and work. It's like, this is your portion in life and in your toil in which you toil under the sun. But what we need to remember is the context that we're reading this in. Back then, there was no separation of marriage and home life and work. If you were a farmer, then you were a a farming family. If you were a baker, then you were a baking family. If you were a basket weaver, then you were a basket weaving family, and so on and so on and so on. Your work was surrounded or was intertwined with your family life, with your marriage, and that's why he doesn't separate it. So the same principles apply to work as apply to marriage. Life's finite. We don't know what's around the corner, so seek significance in your work. Again, don't live in this fantasy of what might be. The principle is easy. It's work hard at whatever you've been given to do and do it for the glory of God. That's what Paul says when he's writing Corinthians. He says, whatever you do, work heartily for the Lord and not for men. So don't daydream about, I wish I was doing this, I wish I could do that. I'm not saying you can't chase after career development and all that kind of stuff. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about blossoming where you're planted. He's talking about you're in this situation right now, so while you're there, seek significance in it. Do it for God. And finally then, he he starts to sum all this up in verse 10. And he says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge in the wisdom uh, or wisdom in Sheol to which you're going. Sheol's just another word for the place of the dead. It's sometimes translated grave. And basically he's saying that, that when you die... In, in, in under the sun terms, in human terms, in finite terms, when you die, you're not going to have a chance for work. You're not going to have a chance for marriage. You're not going to have a chance to do these things over again. So seek significance now. We prepare to die by thinking about how to live. And for us as Christians living on the other side of, of the cross than, than, than Solomon, we know that life goes on for eternity after we die. Life, in some ways, just begins when we die. We know that there's more than life than just life under the sun. And like every other passage in Scripture, this passage finds its fulfillment. It finds its promises and wisdom fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. Let me explain what I mean by that as we finish up here. Food, appearance, marriage, work, These four gifts that he mentions, and we've talked about many more, these are all gifts from God. But without Jesus and his kingdom, they're all temporary. They all end. They have no permanence. They have no significance. They're all hevel. They're all vapor. They're all a mist. Ultimately, in the grand scheme of things, without Jesus, they're pointless. But all these gifts find their meaning in Jesus. All the gifts of God are only fulfilled in their truest sense in the gift, in Jesus. See, Jesus came to establish his kingdom in the world. 
And, and our work is to join him in this mission. And part of that is enjoying the gifts of God with significance while we're here in the way that he intended them to be enjoyed. Let me explain. Listen to this language from Revelation 19. This is language about uh, food and clothing and marriage. And this is a, the John, the writer John, and he's seeing the kingdom of God in all its fullness and the final day when it's all fulfilled and consummated. Even that language consummated is through marriage. He says this, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejo- rejoice and exult and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come. The Lamb is Jesus. And his bride, the church, that's us of your Christians, The church has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saint. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. See, someday, in the fullness of the kingdom of God, food won't just be for nutrition to keep us going and sustenance. Food will be for celebration. It'll be for enjoyment. In the fullness of the kingdom, we won't just wear clothes to cover up our nakedness or to keep us warm. We'll wear the, the robes of righteousness, pure and bright. And I love this language of marriage too. Now on earth, earthly marriages are just a, are just a foreshadowing of the true marriage we'll have in Jesus. So I would say this, if you're married, don't let your marriage be the most important thing in your life. Marriage isn't your God, God is your God, and your marriage is just a gift from God. Our job as married people is just to show the church what God's relationship with his people is like. And single people, don't let marriage be your God. Marriage is not your God, God is your God. Your job in the church is to show us married folks that marriage is just a symbol of what God's relationship to his people is like because as married folks, we get carried away and we make marriage our God. We make it our all. And the only thing that is our all is Jesus. And you need to remind us of that all the time. And someday we're gonna have this true marriage, a real, faithful, eternal, intimate marriage without jealousy, without envy, without cheating, without pride, without lust. And it's gonna be beautiful. Food, marriage, appearance, all finding their fulfillment in the kingdom of Jesus. The Bible speaks of work too. And on that day, we will we'll work hard. It'll be fulfilling work. Each of us will get the rewards, the true rewards of our labor. We won't just be working a dead-end job to, to pay off debt. Do you ever feel like you're just working to you know, keep, above the, keep your head above water? Listen to this language from, from Revelation 22. The angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life. Listen to this. With 12 kinds of fruit. That's some tree. Yielding its fruit each month. Wow. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, that's key, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. When we go back to the fall in Genesis 3, we see that the ground was accursed when we rebelled against God. So suddenly we had to toil with sweat. Suddenly the weeds grew up quicker than the crops. Suddenly disease entered an entire crop's field and we always felt that we were working to catch up. And that's why we still feel that now. That's why we're working to pay off debts. That's why we never feel that like we get the just rewards of our work because we don't, because we live in a fallen, accursed world. But in the kingdom, that tr- the tree is gonna yield uh, 12 kinds of fruit every month. We'll, we'll, we'll work in whatever way God has given us to work and we'll receive the, the, the true payment for that. You see, only through Jesus do all these gifts of life make sense. Everything, we're going to sing this. Aren't we going to sing it? I think we are. All, all these things find their fulfillment and significance in Jesus. So my message is simple today. Seek significance in the gift of life, the gifts of life, because as we do, we're practicing the way of the kingdom of God. That's what I meant when I said we're practicing for heaven. Our mission statement at Village is joining God in the renewal of all things. And we do this by living in the way of the kingdom of God. So, so we live our marriages in a kingdom way. We live our meals in a kingdom way. We live our work in a kingdom way. We live our appearance in a kingdom way. There's one really quickly, one final element, and, and it's my duty, and I'd be remiss if I didn't bring this out as well. And then we're done, I promise. Just as life finds its fulfillment in Jesus, So does death. 
I know that it was hard talking earlier about how death is unfair. And it's not fair. But the death of Jesus is the most important event in history because it's the only event in history through which all the other events of history make sense, including death. Death feels unfair to us, but the gospel says if we want to make sense of death, we have to look to the death of Jesus, don't we? Because it's only through the unfairness of the death of Jesus that death becomes fair because his was the only death that was truly unfair. We all deserve death because we've all rejected God. We saw that. We rejected God and his way of life, and so instead we received the way of death. But Jesus never deserved death, right? He didn't reject God in the way of life. He embodied the way of life. He himself is life. But yet, in order that we could have life, in order that we could find significance on all the gifts of life, he gave up his life. In order that we can have life in all its fullest, in order that we can make sense of all the gifts of life, in order that we can uh, have true life in its truest sense forever and ever and ever. So, for everyone this morning, especially if you're not a Christian, if you feel like you can't find significance, if you feel like I'm trying all these things but I can't find significance, you sound like Russell Brand, it's because you haven't found the, the lens to look at them through. You need Jesus in your life and he's the one that can unlock these things and make them make sense. He's the only one through all of this makes sense. Believe that Jesus died so that you don't have to. We all need to do that this morning. Believe that he didn't deserve to die, but he gave up his life willingly. And he did it so you could live. He's the ultimate example of living life backwards, isn't he? He deserved to live, but he gave up his life to die. That's our redeemer and our example, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. We thank you that you lived life backwards, that you sought significance over comfort, that your life here on earth was marked by, um, by meals with people, by serving people, by not worrying too much about your appearance, but instead dressing yourself in righteousness, by working hard at the task which the Father gave you to do. Lord, I pray that as our Redeemer, you will empower us to live in your example. Father, we pray that as our Redeemer, uh, you will uh, open our hearts and open our eyes this morning to see that we need to seek significance in life. Father, give us the energy and the stamina, stamina and the boldness and the courage to seek significance. Challenge us this morning, Lord. May we share the blessings of what you've given us. And in sharing our blessings, may we share you too, Lord. People are going to come to know you when we open up our tables to them when we clothe ourselves in righteousness, when, we, when, when we, our marriages reflect what the kingdom of God is like, when we work for your glory, people are gonna see who you are and they're gonna come to know you, Lord. May it be so, we long to see you this morning. And Father, as we come to your table to celebrate your death and remember your death, Lord, um, would you remind us and impress upon us once again uh, what a cost for you, to, what a cost for you, for you to make sense of death, what a cost for you to to help us make sense of life. And Father, I pray that this table wouldn't be a final stopping point today. Lord, I pray that it would be our motivation, it would be our starting point to go out into the world and to live with significance and to live for your glory. We ask all these things in your name, Lord.